Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode seven of the Lucas and Zach podcast. Um, continuing on with Halloween animated movies. I'm here. Zach is here. How are you doing, Zach? Um, I broke my finger. I Maybe I did. It's like above the knuckles. I can move it, but it's real purple, and it's real swollen, and I like, it was in my school parking lot. I shut my finger inside the car door, like fully shut the door to where you couldn't even, like, you had to reopen it completely, uh, and I like ran circles for about five minutes in the parking lot um, and yelled loudly. I think there was a student that saw me, but otherwise um, I'm using my baby's um, chewy, I call it. It's like for teething. Um, I'm going to have to replace it somewhere in the middle of the show because this keeps ice for like five minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, let's be real. Fingers are overrated anyway. You don't really need them outside of thumbs. Keep you have the thumb, you're fine. Um, we also have a special guest today who has, I, I hopefully, 10 functioning fingers. It's Caleb Cole. Debatably 10 functioning fingers. Uh, <laughs> depends on what the function is. Math? Not at all. Uh, but uh, What do you do with your fingers for math? Uh, when I have to count points, obviously for fandom matches, and then the match is off by eight because I just I can't count. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, so let's get this show started with the typical yeah. intro. Uh, let's talk about the last movie we all logged on Letterboxd. Um, Zach Ford. Last hey, movie buddy. logged on Letterboxd. Um, so I'm starting a new year marathon, 1985, um, and, and a friend picked for me to watch um, Return to Oz. I made lots of jokes about how this was just going to give him a bad rap, and he was making me watch a shit show. Return to Oz is rad. It's real rad. Uh, no one's going to like this movie, but it, it's just like I say I, I, I do this activity often with my language arts students where I say, like, say five words. And it's like the first five words I hear from the kids shout out. I'm like, now write me a story about with those five words. And that is how they wrote Return to Oz. They said, hey, kids, tell me five words. They're all like, uh, chicken, uh, pumpkin man, uh, moose couch, and just said random things. And like, guess what? This is the new Wizard of Oz sequel, baby. And it is crazy and great. <laughs> just weird. And I think sometimes I could just love the weirdness of things. Yeah, I feel like it's weird that you thought you were not gonna like this movie because this sounds like a you movie because you like, <laughs> like weird, weird, weird fantasy movies, which is like very much kids jam. fantasy movies. <laughs> All right, we're turned to us, Mr. Coho. Last movie you logged on Letterboxd. Uh, so uh, the real last movie I logged on Letterboxd is in theaters and sucks called The Call. So we're gonna leave that for people who All are right. still gonna watch it, and we're gonna talk about The Untouchables because I got to watch that today, and that. That slaps. Um, I uh, I finished it and I immediately went. You know, if I could replace the Tim Burton Batman movie and give De Palma a Batman movie with half of these people, it would be incredible. Um, De Niro is really underrated as Capone. I think he's really good in the movie, but I think everyone talks about Connery for a reason. He's really, really magnificent. Um, I also just I loved the vibe all the way through of it and how it just it doesn't necessarily feel like your regular like run-of-the-mill sort of crime epic and it just has a very human sort of story with connery and costner's connection uh through it all and it's not really about capone but whenever capone shows up it's mint uh but yeah it's a great movie i can uh concur it is a great movie i don't know zach have you seen the untouchables no, nah, I haven't seen Untouchables because I'm a Philistine. I guess <laughs> that's not like a movie for the intellectuals. Wrong term used. 
I just gotta quote Squid and the Whale whenever I can. <laughs> all right, all right, we can go with that. Um, so I've been watching a lot of Halloween themed stuff, but I'm gonna skip that for now and talk about the last movie I watched, which was The Gentleman, which is the new Guy Ritchie movie, mm-hmm. which is this is kind of shocking, kind of kind of boring for being honest for a Guy Ritchie movie. I found myself genuinely bored at a lot of the film, and this is. And for a director who likes to, you know, go with a lot of sex and violence and drugs and, like, a lot of kind of extreme stuff, really boring movie. Also, um, Guy Ritchie started making movies in the late 90s, early 2000s, and his um, sense of culture has not necessarily caught up to the current times. And so there are moments where he will make jokes about certain things or include certain plot points, I'm not gonna go into specifics here, that feel very, very, very dated in the way that you expect when you're watching a late 90s crime film, but not when you're watching something that came up very recently. And so it, it just turns into a really frustrating watch. Um, I think McConaughey is kind of bad in this movie, if we're being honest. Like, it's not the same, like, I actually think Charlie Hunnam, sneaky good career kind of going on right now. Like, he's, a guy who gets kind of crapped on a lot, but also kind of talented. And he was he gets... on a boat in a river, and that means it was a good career. <laughs> that is correct. That movie, better than The Gentleman. But yes, The Gentleman. <laughs> guy Ritchie, really not worth your time. Oh, I believe that's my second least favorite of 2020 so far. It was uh, not good. Because <laughs> you brought it up, so I got to ask, what's the least favorite of 2020? Oh, I saw the Jesus rolls. Oh, I, I wanted to die. Jesus rolls was the most disappointing thing I've ever seen in my life. I ranted about that in, I believe, our bonus episode on Greyhound. That movie is atrocious. It oh, is so bad. Uh, so bad. For, but, a Jesus, for a Jesus Quintana movie, it's not Jesus Quintana at all. Hey, if his name is Jesus Quintana, should we be calling the movie Jesus rolls? Just saying. But it's nobody fucks with the Jesus. Did you? What are the nine hundred problems of that movie? That is one of the least. That <laughs> That's true. That's true. But let us move on to a movie that is actually fun and does not make you hate your life, and that is Hotel Transylvania, which is a blast. It's really fun and really enjoyable. And we are going to start our discussion of our feature film for the week with the way we always start our discussion of our feature film, which is the Zach Ford famous plot summary. Now, Zach, yo, hit it. I, I want to watch all the videos because I feel like I do the same like posture reset to like get my mind working for this plot summary. So, uh, Hotel Transylvania. It is a hotel, assuming it's in Transylvania, um, ran by Count Dracula. Uh, now he's there with his daughter, um, who we learned to come was uh, him and her survived um, this like human attack that the wife did not was. I'm very confused by this, but I, I'm assuming she was not a vampire and he was. It was just like interspecies relationship. So she's a half vampire, really. I'm not fully sure, but I'm going to assume the daughter's a half vampire. Um, but they live together. It's her 118th birthday. Get it? It's 18 plus 100. Um, that is the best detail I've ever remembered. Um, and they're having a party, which I guess means all of Dracula's friends come. She has no friends. Because she was kept in the uh, house, all his like old buddies, which happened to settle all like Adam Sandler's buddies, um, <laughs> come 
and hang out for her birthday. She gets to hang out with a bunch of, I guess, like 400-year-olds. Um, and uh, then a human walks in. It's, it's Andy Samberg, who just, like, talks about concerts a lot and music festivals, even though he has shitty taste in music. He's, a, like, a real character. These, like, shitholes that, like, talk about music, but, like, you're just talking about Slipknot Dave Matthews. Like, you don't actually care about music. You just, like, get doing drugs at concerts. That's Andy Samberg's character. Um, that He zings with the girl, and then there's, like, a problem because they don't like humans because they're scared of humans. Um, but really, you shouldn't be scared of humans. And then they all learn to, like, uh, be open-minded to other possibilities. And um, he helps. He does a full, like, romantic comedy ending at an airport, which is, like, 90% of romantic comedies, but actual plane, um, to convince them to go back together. And his heart and open-mindedness grows. I lost track of like 40 minutes of that movie, but we're, we're going to go on to talk about Hotel Transylvania. Well, I mean, I think that was, <laughs> that was a plot summary. <laughs> lost track of about 40 minutes. Let me see, lost about half the movie. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. Um, so we tend to start these discussions in these animated movies talking about the studio. But I don't know about everyone in the audience. I looked at a list of the movies that came from Sony Pictures Animation. And um, I haven't watched most of these. And I have very little takes on the ones I have watched. So let's talk about what is the real creative force behind this, which is less the studio in the case of, you know, Ardman or Laika, and more the director, which is Gandhi Tartakovsky, who for feature films is most famous for this series but has also had some pretty famous work on TV, including um, Samurai Jack is very famous, and then Star Wars The Clone Wars. I'll be honest, I am not familiar with his TV work. I don't know if Caleb is, I don't know if- Oh yeah, baby. So you oh, are, yeah. all right, then I'm gonna throw it to you. Tell us about your your uh, relationship with Tartakovsky and like um, his work. So uh, I've never actually seen Samurai Jack. The one I'm very familiar with is Star Wars Clone Wars, the original the original Clone Wars show. The weird uh, looking one. The, oh, the animation is so weird, baby, but that story rips. Uh, it is a series of five-minute videos that are individual moments and battles throughout the fabled Clone Wars. There's not really an overarching story. You more so get to see in there's two seasons. So the first season is very much collections of scenes. You see like Mace Windu single-handedly take down an entire droid army with his bare hands. You get to see... Um, Kit Fisto lead an underwater assault, uh, and, and it's pretty dope. You get to see a lot of your Jedi do their own thing. There's, a, I guess, a small subplot about Anakin Skywalker and Asajj Ventress, and uh, that's where she's created, and Anakin kills her in the first season. Uh, and the second season actually has an overarching theme of Anakin becoming a Jedi Knight and all this stuff. Uh, and General Grievous is introduced in the most dope cliffhanger in a season finale ever, where he kills eight Jedi in one place, including... Uh, the only two people who survive are Shock T and Ki Adamundi, uh, are the only two who survive, but they kill Shaggy from Scooby Doo, who is a Jedi Knight, and it's dope. Uh, Man, why is Shaggy in Star Wars? I no mean, idea. That's because the only he thing can't. I caught. You said like fifty percent of English words, <laughs> and the one thing where I was like, I got the Shaggy. Yeah, <laughs> and the thing is, the show ends directly into the beginning of Revenge of the Sith. So, like, the last two episodes are the kidnapping of the Chancellor by General Grievous, and the final shot is the first shot of Revenge of the Sith. And it's pretty cool. So Interesting. So that's your relationship with him on oh, TV. Yeah. And then, of course, you come into this. How do you... I mean, you're clearly the person who has a little more experience than the best. Um, how do you feel like his TV work goes into his film work in Hilton Transylvania? Is it similar, or is it... 
like can you tell that this is made by the same person or is it is it too different i would i would I'll be honest, it's very different to compare mm. the two things he's made because Clone Wars is very short-form storytelling, very breath-in-the-moment, but he is very good at visual storytelling. Mm. Um, and I think some of that translates here with some of the visual gags. He does a good job of, like, do he, like there are moments in Clone Wars where he uses visual comedy to elicit just, like, a moment of, like, a chuckle here to let you breathe in the 30 seconds that you have, mainly from a couple of clone troopers who get to like, when they do silent movements and stuff like that, like they're actually communicating, but to you, it's just kind of weird uh, and stuff like that. Like he has moments. Uh, so I think mainly I would assume Samurai Jack really informs his work on these movies, but I haven't seen Samurai sure. Jack. Yeah, my ahead, memory of Dexter's Lab, which is probably the most experience I have, but I haven't watched it since I was a kid is some of the like quick motion and as as Coho and NASA like physical gags, just like the uh, posture of the bodies and the com the contradictions of body sizes, um, there's where a lot of humor I feel like comes from, and I feel like there's still a lot of that in Hotel Transylvania. I would say my favorite Tartakovsky um, work is probably he did a Luke Cage comic book for Marvel that's real great, um, and that's definitely where the body sizes are so exaggerated um, in. Um, I feel like he tones it down a little bit in Hotel Transylvania, but there is still such a, like, the edges are, like, somehow round and jacket at, like, the same time. There's just, like, some weird shapes that he's able to create these bodies um, that is automatically just, like, built for humor. Um, and, and they still have, like, texture to them, because we'll compare it to, like, Adam's Family, which is, like, so flat in its animation mm -hmm. style. Um, but I feel like shape-wise, they're kind of similar, but there's just a little extra texture that he puts onto his style um, that makes it you know, a little bit more intriguing um, as well. Definitely likes to play with contorting Dracula's body. Like Dracula's body contortion is played as a joke. When yeah. he gets really mad, he has certain body language and like it zooms in really fast. And or if he's like being goofy and funny and trying to like be the fun dad, he definitely has a different body posture than when he's dealing being the runner of the hotel or like it's Dracula the scary guy. So like it definitely has different um like the physic it's actually kind of interesting because a lot of times they don't play with physicality and animation as much. Because in the way they do in this, where they contort the body shapes as much, like a lot of times you have you have a set shape, and that person then in the animation acts like a person would in live action. So much of the emotion is exhibited by their postures. So when he's like angry and needs to get something done, is when he like hunches his back and like the cape flies by and it's like runs and it's like very um, like straight in fashion. Even the, um, and I think that is. Uh, just some great visual storytelling that we're trying to exhibit that he adds. I mean, I think you also cannot talk about this movie without talking about Adam Sandler because this is very much a Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler makes Adam Sandler movies, and this is an animated Adam Sandler movie. He has brought all his friends along. David Spade, Kevin James, all the people he likes to hang out with, Steve Buscemi, all these people you've seen working with work in live action. He brought them in his voices, but also even the character is very much Adam Sandler in that he kind of has that yelly mean side. You see this in a lot of his 90s comedies where he'll have outburst, moments of outburst against people when he feels like there's unfairness, but also just very goofy and fun. And he seems to just really – I respect Adam Sandler a lot because the voice doesn't sound like Adam Sandler. He's not playing – you hired Adam Sandler. A little bit. I think Sandberg, Sandberg. I think Sandberg sounds way more like Sandberg. Sandberg is just doing Sandberg. 
Adam Sandler generally seems like he's trying to play a character, like he enjoys the character of Dracula and wants to play like his version of Dracula. So I think it's just, I think it's interesting to watch um, someone like Sandler get like so much of a creative control and so much of like, um, you know, like he has the ability to affect the choices and things that happen in this movie. Yeah, um, I would I would say Sandler's performance even is a little bit of a a little bit of a Bella Lugosi vibe. Like he's kind of trying to do his spin on Bella Lugosi's spin on Dracula, and it kind of works. He kind of brings that. Like I think when you like even the character just like sounds like him. I think the character even looks like him. Like they kind of animate Dracula in the style of if they were animating Adam Sandler to be Dracula. I think Sandler kind of steps into this in a way where he's clearly having fun and he's bring a lot of heart to it in a way that he doesn't bring yeah. to like a little Nikki. Uh, and like, it's a lot of fun to watch because you actually just like connect to him a lot more. It, it's kind of the perfect role for Sandler to have. And I would say probably his best comedic role, the 2010s um, in a way, because I think he's still able to bring all the kind of childlike and mature goofiness. But when you put it into an animated form, it's just a lot easier to buy. Like it's not being made for adults; it's being treated with kids' humor. So, it this that approach has you um, reach it with a different perspective that then works. But as um, Co was saying with heart, I Adam Sandler loves saccharine shit. Like he likes to step a little lower and like give you some sap. And this movie like delivers the sap in full effect and it's very effective. Um, the emotional beats of this, of, um, you know, trying to do, you know, the parenting aspect of just trying to do your best. He's just trying to do his best with the daughter and it's delivered with this earnestness that is really felt. And uh, same with the earnestness that's felt the loss of his wife. It feels real. And Adam Sandler has the ability to, you know, dig to that deeper, softer, sadder side. Um, while still just being, you know, a crazy, goofy, yelling Dracula. He also gets to sing with ukulele. Like, this is much more of an Ab Sandler movie than I feel like it is a Tarkovsky movie, uh, yeah. especially with the humor. Like, Al has all his friends. This is grown-ups mixed with Monster Mash. This is, like, take Ooh, all, yeah. all, all yeah. his grown-ups buddies, and it's just a hangout movie, but let's make them monsters and just say monster jokes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you just brought up the wife, which I think is such an important character. Not that she's on screen very much, but I think the fact that he lost her makes the dad behavior um, understandable and justified. Because if this movie was just about a dad who was worried about his kid going near boys, it becomes a very creepy animated movie very quickly. But the fact that they really play into what they're afraid of is the outside world, because the outside world has clearly scarred them. It has caused them to lose people they care about. And so it's not just like um, him being overprotective for nothing. He has a clear reason to be overprotective because he lost yeah. his wife. I mean, I do think we were talking about in your uh, plot summary. I do think she is played as human. And that's why in some ways he's so scared of the appearance of the Johnny, uh, the Adam Sandberg character, just because he sees what happened to him and his wife, the potential of that happening to his daughter. And I think that is what he is most terrified of is, oh, if I let her go into the world with him, will the people do the same thing over again? Yeah, it's the concept of the effects of trauma, but dealt with kid gloves, which is okay. It's a kid's movie, but it's still the long lasting, the, you know, 100 years, 118 years, got this 118 years lasting effects of, you know, a traumatic situation and that he's had, it's, hard for him to overcome. He goes through hoops to, 
you know, prevent him from having to redeal with that trauma. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think that's a yeah. You guys nailed it. I think that's like a really important part of this movie in a way where it's like if they didn't have it, it it's not as good. This goes from being like a three and a half four star movie, maybe like a two. It's exactly it makes a lot of the stuff that doesn't do as great, you know, excusable in a way, and it mm -hmm. makes it step a little bit ahead of some of the other animation movies at the time that is like just jokes and just silliness. Um, this is trying for something a little deeper. Cause I think humor rise, like I feel like I give it a break maybe because I'm, I'm buying into everything it's selling. And Adam Sandler just has the ability to like make you want to be with him. And you just kind of give him a break for telling dumb yeah. jokes. Like it's fine. He's never really funny. He's just like likable to be around. I feel like all Adam Sandler movies and a lot of people hate them are still like just easy to watch because it's fun to be around. But the like humor is still like overly childish. And there's just like lots of butts, just tons <laughs> of butt jokes. And I was like, it's okay, but I'll, I'll take all the butt jokes. The movie literally opens with a joke about farting and somebody yeah. else getting blamed for it. That is kind of the opening joke of the film is, hilar isn't it hilarious when you fart and then you get somebody else blamed for it? And then but they kind of pull it off. But I think, kind it of pull that one off. I think it works because I think it's also like something about Sandler is he's very relatable. Like he doesn't always feel like I think there's a lot of people who like Sandler because he's a very relatable sense of humor. You're like, yes, I could see my friend making that. My brother has made that joke. Like there's a lot of these jokes that a lot of, you know, I think you have like it's the it's the double edged sword, to be honest. Like part of you is like these jokes aren't that funny because anybody could make them. But they're also very endearing because they are kind of the jokes that a lot of different people would make in the same situation. You know, all the jokes about like, oh, they're running for an exit and they just keep opening doors and it's naked skeleton, which is funny because there's nothing to see anyway. So you're just making a joke about accidentally walking in on people. But it's you add the uh, the extra the humor points of it being in a, um, a, a hotel full of monsters. So you're I seeing a bunch of random monsters naked. I will say my favorite joke in this movie is one that I didn't catch until this viewing when uh, Frankenstein pants as the Invisible Man and he says, the pool was cold. Don't judge me. And, <laughs> and it's like, it's like no one's going to get that if you're not listening. So now we know the Invisible Man has a small dick. Nothing's better a joke. It's a great joke because if a child is watching this movie, a kid will not get that joke, but an adult will, which gives it that like double layer of something that like you watch it as a kid and you just think it's funny because they're monsters and you get to an adult and you're like, oh, there's a little extra layer of something to be there when I'm watching it. Yeah. yeah. But my thoughts with saying like the kids are too childish is not me being like, I need the jokes to serve me as an adult male watching you know, <laughs> right. but it is that i think that sometimes a lot of modern animation films speak down to children and think that they can only laugh at butt jokes and there's nothing a little wittier that they can deliver um children and i think there's a lot of proof especially throughout history that that's not true it's just the easy lazy reality i will say the best jokes to me were much more visual guys probably more you know tartakovsky stuff um mm -hmm. my, my my favorite joke which happens early when he's like, um, you know, you're not Dracula, prove, or no, it's at the end, where he's at the festival and they're like, you're not Dracula, prove it to me. And he just like, my, does a quick motion, like warps his mind and makes him smash a glass in his face. And to me, it's the visual gags like that, that was a lot more effective. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about like the other actors in this. So you get, um, obviously Sander, Sandler and Samberg is the main two. Selena Gomez plays the daughter. I think Kevin James is actually pretty funny as Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. um, I also enjoy uh, 
Buscemi as the poor male werewolf who has 9,000 children he cannot deal with. So it's always, always a good joke. Always a good joke. <laughs> Zach is like, I have one kid. <laughs> and then just, there's a lot of really good, I love John Lovitz as uh, the chef who's just constantly hunting for humans. I it, guess I could not realize that was John Lovitz. He's the one that's doing like most of a voice. Yeah. I think it's just a, it's just a really fun cast. It's like you get some good, funny people, you bring them in and you're like, we're not going to do anything, anything too crazy, but we're going to have you all be monsters. And then we're going to have like, you know, small, funny quirks, you know, it, it, I think it just plays really well. It's just a really fun, enjoyable film. That's part of the charm of Sandler is that bringing his buds around, he gets made fun of for it. But I think it just brings a lot of sincerity and charm. Like when I make a movie, you guys will be in it. Fuck it. <laughs> no, if, I have the, if I have the salary to do what I want, like do what you want. It makes it kind of charming. I'm glad he has no loyalty and I'm glad Sandler's having fun. And like I, th I think like uh, he gets a lot of hate for bringing the same couple people around, but I think all those people have great chemistry with Sandler, so yeah. it's really smart that he does that, just to keep surrounding yourself with co-stars that you like to be around and people like seeing you with. I had a blast with all of them. I think all of them play their characters very well uh, and sort of bring <laughs> the right sense of who that actor is supposed to be to yeah. the right character. Like, Buscemi is not doing anything really different than what you would expect Buscemi to do, but he's perfect to be the Wolfman. And Kevin James is not doing anything different than Kevin James. He's not doing anything different than he did even Paul Blart. He's just voicing Frankenstein. Yeah. And it's just, they're all kind of just perfectly placed where they need to be for it to work. Going on a little bit of a sidetrack, can we talk about how weird it is that Steve Buscemi is like part of Adam Sandler's crew? Like he right. has like a serious career outside of doing, you know, side jobs and the Adam Sandler thing and trying to form his own career. Who else can like have this very serious, you know, dramatic acting career and then just like do shitty parts in Adam Sandler movies? I do have a really weird question about this cast that Rob Schneider, I think, is the only member of this crew who doesn't show up in this movie. But for some reason, CeeLo Green is the mummy. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, it feels like that was supposed to be Rob Schneider, but he just wasn't available. And, well, they, wonder, yeah. they definitely corrected that role. Because I think he's the weakest part of it. Because he's not an actor. And it comes off. And they do he replace him get, with... He does get replaced in the sequels. Keegan with Michael Keegan Michael Key, which is, I think, a lot more effective. And they probably should have just captured him from the beginning. Well, isn't CeeLo Green in this movie for one reason? It's because they want him to do, the singing, part, to do the singing part in the last they song. Want, like, that's they the want him to do the part. Yeah. That's the most annoying part of the movie. <laughs> and this like annoyed me of a lot of modern animation. Is like Their idea of like pop music for kids is the most like generic, <laughs> dumbed-down version of pop music. And I just like can't stand it. I'm just too much of a snob. And I can't even forbid it or... Like, um, forgive it for being for kids because it's just shitty and it happens in a lot of things. We don't need your like pretending to have hip hop or and shaking your butt for kids. You can be smarter than that. I guess my question then is why get CeeLo Green when you already have Selena Gomez, who's oh, arguably oh, yeah. a bigger pop name that can deliver a better pop song? Pie, it would be better. Yeah. I have a big, I have a big hot take on Selena Gomez, which is that in that final song, I think she's the worst part of it. Ooh, yeah. I think she's. I think. I think Sandberg. Who is only sort of a singer? Let's he be real. He's really a comedic singer. Used to his voice and you're welcoming to it. I yeah, I love. I no mean, I think that's a, I think it's a very much a Lonely Island song at the end. I actually really like the songs in this movie. I think it fits into Sandler and Sandberg's dynamic. They like singing songs. It's part of their entire career. And I thought it was kind of it, it's a good move to be like, hey, we have two comedic actors who have spent their entire careers playing characters who have either yeah. full 
on singing careers or just partial singing careers. So why not throw a couple funny songs? And it's it's more fun because it's Adam Sandler and Andy Samberg singing a song than it is if they just had some random, let's go find two pop stars and have them record it who are not even in the movie. Yeah, so I, I want to point out that comparison because the Sandler songs, when he's playing on ukulele, they work for me because there's like such a sincerity to it. Like he knows he's kind of being cheesy, but there's also a sweetness to it. And the, that kind of stuff always really works for me. The Sandberg and Lonely Island style is with this like dose of irony that just seems a little cynical for a kid's movie. Um, and, and that just, it just sticks out. It's like, doing rap while making fun of rap and that's not appropriate while well, i'm saying was just writing silly little ditties on his own i mean i will say sandberg at this point and the lonely island were at peak lonely island <laughs> like in terms of like balance before they like figured out their niche where they were just kind of coming in doing the comedy rap that they've always done so this was like the height of this was i think this was when turtleneck and chain came out so like Jack Sparrow with Michael Bolton was like a chart topper. <laughs> so like they, that was like their peak in terms of like being the cynics. And they kind of had the like the neat like then they did Lego Movie and Pop Star and they like found their like footing as a group post the first two albums. So like I think this is like Sandberg pre before the Lonely Island really found like their Lego Movie like everything is awesome fit. But it's like almost there. So it's like you can see it. But like yeah, I I, I like the music in it. I don't really find it super memorable uh i think it's all fine I, i'm actually with zach i think i like the sandler on the ukulele bits the most just because like it fits the character more and the rest of it all just kind of feels like we're doing this yeah. for commercial reasons to try and make more money so when you leave the theater you can download that song because it's gonna get stuck in your head but all the sandler yeah. ones are the ones where it feels like it organically fits yeah, you tagged it. It functions with characters. The other ones are just because they couldn't figure out how to end the movie on I know. Right. Hey, I like the final song. I'm just going to go on the record and say <laughs> I enjoy that part. I enjoy Andy Samberg singing. I will be okay with that like in any it. movie. Hey, um, talking about Philistines, them going and saying like, hey, this like zombie, you know, Beethoven orchestra is like not good enough for my party. That was pretty funny, though. Potter. They probably would be pretty good. I mean, I think it was... That was just a funny. That was like, the entire point of the joke is to state how out of touch Dracula is, because he thinks he thinks um, you know M M Beethoven and Mozart are hip, and then his friends think like seventies is hip, and then Andy Samberg is like, no, we actually need to like update it to the current day, otherwise this is ridiculous. I don't know. I think it's a really fun thing. I think they just. I think it. The entire movie is just like, let's introduce kids to a bunch of characters that they won't see in the scary movies but in like a yeah. fun and enjoyable way and then just um it has a pretty good lesson about like trusting your kids and understand like a kind of like understanding against kind of comes back up is just like mavis has to understand why her dad is afraid and he has to understand why she wants freedom and then you know everybody else has to understand why the two worlds humans and monsters may not be need to remain separate that's like the possibility exists that they could interact with each other in a way that's not scary and doesn't end up with people dead and a more complex theme really of trying to like understand that the like traumatic negative moments in your life are a moment and move past that and be open to you know challenging those those traumas um without having it long lasting effects yeah. I think Hotel Transylvania in general is like actually a lot 
more for adults in some ways than one would expect from this movie. Like looking at the poster and who's in it, you would never expect it to kind of like exactly as I said, be a little bit about trauma and a, and a lot about tolerance and understanding. And like, it's, yeah. it's like all great things that you would not expect from an Adam Sandler animated kids movie. And I think they deliver that really well. And it doesn't feel like, well, like, half baked or like they feel like they needed a message so they had it like it feels like the story was written very organically and those ideas sort of organically came up and it all fits very well and it all comes really genuine and like in a sweet way and i think it it makes it one of probably one of the better scripts that sailors worked with like material wise it's some of the best material i think sailors worked with in a long time uh especially this decade but it's one of those magical concepts that you're like, how has this not been made um, at least like five times by now? Like it seems right. so obvious, like so perfect of an idea. Like they made a hotel for dogs before they made a hotel for monsters. That's very true. So <laughs> um, and they got Jim T. Austin for that hotel for dogs. <laughs> Never forget. Hey, Wizards of Waverly play spinoffs all over the place. Hotel Chances, they only do hotel movies. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Um, so one thing I just want to make sure I mention here is I actually think the concept of the zing is really cute and a really cute, like way of defining romance in a way that I think, I think that works for adults. If you see that you're like, oh, I understand that feeling, what it's like when you see that person and something happens, but I think it's also fun for kids because it's kind of a, a non-threatening and non-scary way of just like introducing this idea that you know, your parents must have at some point had this moment or like you're going to have this moment someday. And I think it's just a really cute way of lower. It's like it sort of lowers the stakes. Like it doesn't make you talk about love or anything bigger. But like this, the idea of a zing, I think, is a really cute um, romantic touch. And the idea of like, oh, they zing and they have the eyeball flashing stuff. And I think it's just a cute little moment. And then they turned into the song at the end. And I think overall it just kind of plays into the, you know, the cute and fun nature of the entire film. It also really does the smart thing of assigning a fun, non-threatening word to something that your kids are going to say for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Where, like, now they're going to be like, oh, I zinged! And you're going to want to die after the eighth <laughs> time your toddler says that to you. Uh, but it's it, it's going to work. That's going to be nomenclature, I think, that a lot of kids yeah. that grew up with this movie use. Uh, but also, I think that the zing concept really works, because I think there is a lot of good chemistry between Samberg and Gomez. I think they work really well together. I also just got to say, I really like Andy Samberg in this movie. He's not doing anything special. He's being Andy Samberg, and I think that's perfect for what this character needs to be. That lovable doofus that has no idea where he is. The um, the uh, 118 gets elbowed in the stomach. <clears throat> I'm 121. Like, I think he's just, like, perfect for this dumb character, and I think he plays even into the concept. Of, it makes It's because of Samberg and Selena that the zing doesn't seem like a really ridiculous thing. You just actually totally grasp it because they nail it. I do think the zing is used, used effectively as an excuse to that have to like give too much uh, effort in making their like chemistry work, <laughs> like not making it seem like they're meant to be. It's like oh, it's a zing. You got you get it. Like it's a it's, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, so you can just immediately buy that they need to be together forever. Just quick turn to get to it. Absolutely, I think Sandberg is he's just one of those people that comes into your life, and he's just super charming. And he's one of those people you just – I don't think Andy Samberg is a great actor. I think he's a good actor. I think he has his good moments. He has his bad moments. He's just incredibly charming, and you want to watch stuff he's in. 
And that's why you will watch. As Adam Sandler. Like, that's sure. why they can it's, very similar. it's very similar. They kind of play themselves in everything. They do like, voices will, sometimes, like funny, will, dumb voices that sound like dumb doing funny voices. Absolutely. But you will <laughs> watch them play themselves and stuff because you find them as people just very charming. You found Lonely Island charming. You found him hanging out with his friends that he knew since he was like a middle schooler. Like that is like a very charming topic. Is like, yeah. oh, you're like, they but get to be nine. a band together since they were kids. Like that's a really, um, that's like just a topic, like a, a subject that really just gets people interested. And then he does all the movies, his TV shows. It's just very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I think he's the millennials equivalent of Adam Sandler. And I think that's why they work really well in this movie. Like, I think, like, like if Adam Sandler is for the Gen X people predominantly, then I think Adam Sa Andy Samberg is Adam Sandler's modern counterpart. And putting them together in this movie actually really worked. They, like, I think they kind of understand how each other work, how their chemistry is, and they just kind of bounce back and forth between the two really well. And they, they know when to, they know when to step it up and when to pull it back. And I think they, they like seamlessly kind of just interact with each other really, really well. And it's make what, it's what makes this one specifically work really well. Not necessarily the sequels, but this one works really well. I will be happy to watch the cheaply made yearly Andy Samberg Netflix movie. Get that deal started. I, same. <laughs> Brooklyn Nine Nine movie every year for the rest of my life, and I. It's called it's called Brooklyn Nine Nine and the Bash Bros. Is basically what Zach's asking for, and sure. they were all both wonderful. Um, gentlemen, any more thoughts on Hotel Transylvania? Um, yeah, I I, I think it's just a great sweet movie that went pretty under the radar. Uh, in like in terms of like. Popularity with kids, in terms of popularity with kids, hit. I'm saying like it went under the radar in terms of how appreciated it is as a movie. Like it's, I think it's a good movie that kind of everyone just looks at. It's, I think it gets the Despicable Me treatment, where it spawned a money making machine for this studio. They make money. Everyone knows exactly who these characters are to an extent, but no one gives the first movie enough credit for actually being a legitimately good movie. Uh, and I think like. I think Hotel Transylvania is a really sweet script. It's a really fun idea. It has a really fun cast all the way through. Uh, and watching it again was actually really delightful. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is really sweet. Uh, too bad the second one is absolutely atrocious and has Mel Brooks in it for no reason. Uh, but, yeah. I think what's special about it is that this is like the movies, animation movies that the studio should be turning out. Because it's not like spectacular. It's just like a good average. Like, it's just, a, it's a solid movie. It's just treating it, you know, seriously enough. It's still aiming for kids. And it's what all animation movies should be doing. Just step it up a little bit and all anime movies can reach this level. And let Pixar just absolutely crush everyone. Yeah. That's, that's on a different level. Movies for adults and everyone <laughs> else just meet halfway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would agree on that. Although I don't actually hate the second one. I enjoyed the second one. I, I like I like three more than I like two. If I'm being completely honest, I think I do as well. But I don't think I don't think there's such a massive step down between one and two and three as you are implying. I I, I do just because I think that that movie is very inconsistent. Like the first half I is think, really boring. I may have to rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> I really honest, didn't like two. I'm kind of more in Zach's camp that they all kind of are in sort of Blend similar together. level. Yeah, I think you it's, could kind of. It's almost... like watching a Cartoon Network cartoon that just a different episode every day, and they're just like different episodes. That's well, but yeah, they just kind of change the location. Um, but that has been our discussion of uh, Hotel Transylvania, our main film. So we're going to continue on to 
our second segment where we try to connect our animated film um, back to the world of horror or monster movies. Because we think that a lot of these animated films are attempting to copy or recreate stuff that was seen in you know monster and horror films going back to even like the early universal monsters this one especially i think is leaning into universal monsters it is you know it has the universal monsters cast from you know the 1930s and 40s um zach how would you connect this to the world of monster movies and horror films because i know we have slightly different takes on this yeah, I, I, I think you stated it. It's those universal monsters. And I, I expressed it earlier that I really think it's just like Monster Mash. Like you just take like the group of monsters dancing together and have that Monster Mash. And this is this exhibiting where they literally mash together at the end to see those green. It was a mash. It just didn't say the term. But um, it, it's taking those group of monsters. When you hear Monster Mash, it's like, look, these guys are having a good time. They're drinking some innocent fruit punch. They're dancing. These monsters hang out. They're friends. They all know each other, which is like a big deal. They're not just like in their own worlds. Like they connect. They have their own cons. Um, <laughs> there actually literally is the monster con in this. But um, that that's what this movie is. It, it's taking that song, the idea of monsters hanging out, and putting it into a movie. And, that, and that's the main inspiration. But it is also treating all those universal monsters and playing off them with gags, especially like the Invisible Man, a lot of Invisible Man gags. And, um, you know, the Frankenstein of being, you know, acting out in anger and they have them jump, climb on top of the mountain and then scream out his anger. And that's like a classic monster kind of idea, um, but played for laughs. They're just, they're using that as their, you know, material for jokes. Yeah, I think just in the characterization that they all do, I think everyone, I mean, for the most part, is drawn as closely to as they can to sort of the original without totally invoking what the original is. Like, just enough that you go, okay, yep, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein if it was Kevin James also being that version of that character. And I think that's how they draw them all. That's how they all kind of play them all. Uh, and it works really well enough. And just, like, it doesn't need to be in your face as to what we're doing. It's just enough that you recognize what it is. Uh, I think Sandler's the one who gets the most uh, ability to kind of tie it back, with, like I said, with the Bela Lugosi sort of twist in his voice and the way he plays Dracula. Um, he's very much playing on the classic Dracula. And I think just like the, like even the opening when they're like building the hotel and everything and like, um, and the, oh, we got the town of the undead and this and that, it all kind of feels very much like classic horror movie sensibilities. Um, and that's how they're sort of drawn and presented at the beginning, and I think they do it really well. Uh, and like Zach said, they then twist it and play it for jokes. Uh, and I think it's very reverential, uh, while also understanding that some of those tropes are outdated and don't scare people anymore, but we pay homage to it because it's what came before. And I think that movie does really well walking that line. I think, personally, I think it ties back into the tradition of the Abbott and Costello Universal Monsters films, where it takes the original Universal Monsters, played by the original actors, and then brings them into a comedic universe. So they did Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which features Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and Dracula. They also have standalone movies where they meet the Invisible Man and the Mummy. And something that's just consistent throughout these is they are the unsuspecting humans. They are the Andy Samberg who kind of wanders into the midst of this um, what shouldn't be funny, but because you've put comedic characters in something that should be scary you can have a combination of scares but also it's funny because it's like 
you can make they i mean i think especially the invisible man abbott and costello meet the invisible man is definitely seen in hotel transylvania there's a lot of jokes in abbott and costello meet the invisible man about the invisible man playing pranks on people because he can't be seen or like accidentally knocking him out because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and i think it really plays back into that tradition of hey let's take two comedic actors some more comedy legends and then throw them in there with the universe of monsters and kind of this fun blend of the original characters but also like putting them in a comedic setting very important question is there jokes in epic Cassell about the visible man's dick being shriveled and cold no i do not believe there are specifically <laughs> jokes about that is, it's not as good dick. not as good wrap it up not good because are not as good as Comedic legends, or absolutely these uh, <laughs> shriveled dick jokes in children's movies. <laughs> Can this you is why... please update your letterbox review to say that? I will absolutely <laughs> update my letterbox review to just be like, Abbott Costello, shriveled tiny dick jokes. We're going with Hotel Transylvania. I just think your profile on letterbox should say. 10 out of 10 if you make a shrill dick joke. <laughs> you automatically get a 5 out of 5. Or do the our friend Mike Hanley that has the same review for everything. Just do it for every movie. Just say, not a shriveled dick joke. Not enough shriveled dick jokes. <laughs> that would be an interesting way to play it. Um, this also, I think you also talked about this, like we were talking earlier today in the day before recording. And um, this kind of flips the whole fear of monsters thing on its head in the traditional universe of monsters film everyone is afraid of the monster and in this film the monsters are afraid of the people so in the original universal monsters films uh people are afraid of the monsters so that the people rise up as a mob and go after them and as a viewer you're sort of taught that you should be on the side of the people because the monsters are the bad people and you should be with the regular people and i think um Hulk of transylvania kind of flips that in its head in in this film you're taught to be empathetic for the monsters and their fears and the idea that they'd want a hotel, like a basically a sanctuary for monsters away from people. And I think it's just like a, a quick subversion of that and kind of fun for kids because let's be real, kids don't want to watch a movie about, you know, a random mob of people attacking monsters. That's not as interesting as a hotel full of monsters. It's real refreshing in this mini marathon we're doing because as I said, the one thing that every movie we're watching is like the angry human mob at torches. Every movie is still treating like the humans as the real monsters. And it's nice to have the spin that, you know, they are just mis as misunderstood as the monsters that um, they think are, are causing havoc. And it's, it's, it, that's just one of those things this movie does smarter than average kids movies because we're going to Adam's family and it takes the most dumb, obvious route of that concept. Yeah, I think you guys both hit on the head. I think this movie is really kind of perfect at taking that, like, what the traditional mob, and also puts that back on the monsters, where now the monsters are the mob, but also the sort of, we become the thing we hate in that sort of meta-narrative of that. I think that this movie kind of kind of then places that the bad guys aren't the, are the, the bad guys aren't the monsters, and the bad guys aren't the humans. The bad guy is misunderstanding. And, like, in to kind of teaches you through the story that all of this can be settled by under, just taking the time instead of fighting what you don't understand, trying to understand what you don't understand. Um, and I think changing the instinct of fight instead of empathize is a really strong narrative that works throughout the film in a big subtextual level uh, and works really well when you have the already just subconscious uh, picture of your in your mind of the black and white monsters being chased by the mob um, and how they sort of then reiterate that in a reverse. Um, and I think this movie does that really well. 
Absolutely. Um, you're right. We go back to understanding as the core theme of the film. Um, anyone else have any more thoughts on how this connects back to uh, horror or monster movies of past years? Uh, there is uh, no more shriveled Invisible Man dicks in the <laughs> Invisible Man of 2020. So no, so no uh, better Invisible Man in Hotel Transylvania. We're very disappointed. I can't have any more thoughts because I don't know how I've been on camera with Coho so much, but I've never been so fixated on Michael B. Jordan's chest. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I'm just staring at that that pulsating. Totally <laughs> That's been like for what two years now? I might need oh, to change yeah. the poster. I might need to change the poster. <laughs> no, you can't. It's perfect. You're right. I can't. I have Spider. Spider Verse is going to have to stay in the in the box. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that has finished our episode on Hotel Transylvania. Uh, thank you, Cole, for coming on and talking Absolutely. such a fun film with us. We Absolutely. would love to have you back in a future date if we get another film that you are excited and interested to talk about. Absolutely, we'd love to. This was a blast. Absolutely. All right, Zach. Uh, we will be back next week. Absolutely. Talking. With... Oh no no no! Am I wrong? It's Franken Winnie next week, but no guess. Yeah, Franken. No, I wanted to say because I wanted to go. Franken Winnie. It's the best. Time. You're pumped. And, so excited. And we have just been canceled as the show, so um, <laughs> we will be back next week with Franken Winnie. We may have a special guest. Great. We may not. Who knows? Uh, we don't tell you. We have a special guest. Zach always ruins us because I like to pretend that we don't have one. Um, just I, for I just like... believe in transparency. <laughs> 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 All right, folks. With that, we are so done. does the Invisible Man. That's absolutely true. We will see you next yeah, week <laughs> when we talk about Frank and Wee. Have a good night. <laughs>